The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. I have props here, so I'll tell you, we could probably sing the doxology and go home right now, right? A lot of of hope in those songs, a lot of theology. I I recognize Hebrews chapter 6 in that last song, which I had never seen before. That's how God works. He brings things to mind that we sometimes forget. I, uh, my name is Roger Malik. Those of you who don't know me, and uh, I, I preach here once in a while. Um, matter of fact, the last time I preached was a while ago. It was actually when we were inside, uh, and the only time you wore masks was in like a hospital or something. You'd have the nurses or, or doctors, and it was four sermons in two days. So I'm kind of pleased that we're doing it outside, and it's one sermon, so... Um, Have you ever started to make a a sign on a piece of cardboard or wood? And you start out with these letters, and they're good, and they're perfect size, and you you move along, and then when you're about halfway through, maybe two-thirds of the way through, you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm running out of room. And 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 then you decide to to squeeze it in, right? You you wouldn't want to get a new, new piece of cardboard or wood, so you squeeze it in, and it ends up looking something like this, right? This is kind of, kind of what we're doing this morning. We have uh, realized we've run out of cardboard. Our new, our new lead pastor is uh, Michael Best is coming in, uh, in July. He's actually preaching on July 4th, uh, as I understand it, via video, and then we'll be here in person on the 11th. So we, we have exactly three weeks to get through eight chapters of the book of Acts. We, we, we had every intention of preaching through the entire book of Acts when we started this many months ago, but uh, like I said, we've run out of cardboard and um, we've got to move pretty quickly. Or there's another option. I could have preached for five hours this morning, but I didn't want to preach to my wife, so <laughs> she'd be the last one sitting, maybe, I don't even know. But um, Two weeks ago, Pastor Ricky brought us through chapter 20, and today we're in Acts 27. And I don't want to just leapfrog ahead. I I want us to know kind of what happened between 20 and 27. So we've got some ground to cover. So before we do, please join me in prayer. Lord, uh, we know that this morning is about you, not about us. We know that it is about your word spoken to us and for us. And you tell us, Lord, that your word is living, it's alive, it's active. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword, meaning it can, it can get to the deep parts of our soul. And it can touch us and it can affect us in a way that no man could ever do. And Lord, my desire this morning is that you just use me as a mouthpiece and nothing more. That your, your word would touch us deeply and we would respond in that touch. Be glorified this morning. We come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so most of you know about Cliff Notes, right? Cliff Notes, you understand what those are? That's a, a, a small little book that is a 
paraphrase or a summary of larger books for students who don't want to read the whole book or can't read the whole book, right? Um, as I understand it, I'm not saying that I ever read a Cliff Notes, but I hear students do that once in a while. <laughs> they're, they're helpful. Uh, well, what I'm doing this morning from 20 to 27 until we get to the passage we're looking at today is, oh, you know what? I didn't show you guys the sign here. Hang on. Sorry. Now you can laugh. Okay. Uh, what we're doing this morning is um, we are... Uh, Having a hard time. We, no, this is not a hard time. This is great. Um, we, I, I'm doing Cliff's Notes of Cliff's Notes, right? I'm going to distill this way down so we can go from 20 to 27, and then I'm going to preach what we're going to preach on. And, and the danger with that is sometimes when you distill things down too much, it's kind of like the one-line descriptions when you're searching on your TV for a movie. Like you're, you're flipping through and you, and you see the sound of music. Huh, what's that about? And you click on the one-line description and it says, a nanny teaches children to sing in Austria. And you're like, nah, let's go to something else, right? Um, hopefully it'll be a little more interesting than that. So um, basically, two weeks ago, Pastor Ricky did a great job. And matter of fact, Ricky, I don't know if I told you that. I love that you started with Lamentations and brought us through that, that process. And then he, he, he went to... to uh, Acts chapter 20, and, and he talked about uh, the, the elders at Ephesus and how Paul called them together on the beach, and they had a, a final farewell, and it was bittersweet. It was, it was beautiful and sad, and it was a farewell to Paul. He got on a boat. He goes to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he gets arrested. Then he's pretty much saved by the Roman cohort, and he's delivered by, uh, by armed guard to Caesarea. The reason for the armed guard is because the Romans knew that the Jews wanted to kill him for what he was saying. And he gets to Caesarea to be tried by Felix. Well, Felix holds him for two years and doesn't try him. But Paul got the opportunity of speaking with Felix on a regular basis, sharing the love of God. So Felix leaves and a new governor comes in and that's Festus. Festus kind of played both sides of the, of the fence and he wanted to do the Jews a favor, didn't want to offend them, but didn't want to offend Paul and those who were following him. So he said, hey, Paul, why don't you just go back to Jerusalem and get tried there? That would make everybody happy. Well, Paul did not want to go back to Jerusalem because he knew that they would desire to kill him there. So he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, and Festus allowed it. Rome is where Caesar lived, and that was close to 2,000 miles away by sea. This is a very interesting turn of events, because previously when Paul was in Jerusalem uh, in, in being held in a cell to be, really to be protected, the risen Jesus appeared to Paul and told him this. He said, take courage, for have you, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So we get to see that God's plan was to bring Paul to Rome, where he would be tried by Caesar, who, by the way, was Nero at that time. This is also very interesting because way back in chapter 9, Jesus says this about Paul. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. 
So it was absolutely predestined by God that Paul was to preach the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and to kings. And one of those kings was Caesar. But speaking of kings, while Paul was being held at Caesarea, King Agrippa shows up. And King Agrippa tries Paul. So he allowed Paul to make a defense. And while Paul was making his defense, King Agrippa stops him and says, if you keep talking, you'll make a Christian out of me. Stop. You're getting too close. Later, this king and others were talking about how Paul had done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. And King Agrippa said, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, which would be incredibly ironic except for the fact that Jesus had already promised that Paul would go to Rome. So to Rome he would go. So they went on a ship. They made a couple of stops. And then the winds picked up. And they had a difficult time getting to a place called Fair Havens. It was on the island of Crete. Fair Havens was kind of a a marketing guy's uh, uh, plan because it was not a fair haven by any means. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 27, verses 9 through 25. Follow along with me, please. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because, of the, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo on the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee, a small island of Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Let's throw over the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no life of no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
So in verse nine, we're told that um, the voyage had become dangerous because the fast was already over. That, that was the day of atonement. And that's basically like me saying, hey, we're getting close to Thanksgiving. Winter is approaching. This would be how they, they saw that, that, that winter is approaching. Paul said, I perceive this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul was a wise man. This was not his first sailing trip. This was not his first storm. This wasn't his first shipwreck. And he was giving good advice. But we see in the verse 11 that they basically disregarded Paul and they went forward, even though the risks were great. And then from verses 13 through 19, Luke gives an incredible description, a very accurate description of what skilled mariners would do when they're caught in a storm of great magnitude. They tried to stay to land on the lee side, which is the opposite of the windward side. They pulled in and they secured a, a small boat that they were, or a, a boat that they were pulling behind the ship. They pulled it in. But it's interesting. Luke says, with, with, we did this with, with much difficulty. It's so interesting to me that Luke includes himself in this process. He was a physician, not a sailor, but it was all hands on deck and they needed his help. You, you, you know, there were 276 men on this ship and they needed Dr. Luke's help. That tells you how bad it is getting. And once the small boat was secure, which took a while, they wrapped cables and ropes under the large ship, the one they were in, to keep it from falling apart. How big do the waves have to be? How strong does the wind have to be to break a ship apart that is used to sailing on the Mediterranean Sea? Now we start to see the extent of this storm. And then it says that they're worried that the ship was going to uh, run into the great banks of the Sirtis. The Sirtis is in North Africa. That's a long way off trek if you're heading to Rome. They're worried about that. That's how, that's how major the storm was. So they lowered the gear, which means they threw out the sea anchor. The, 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 the sea anchor was almost like a, something to act as a parachute under, underwater to, to slow them down. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to catch the ground. It's meant to, 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 to sit under the surface. And they also most likely lowered their main sail. So they had no more way to, to navigate through, but just were go, going to be blown along because uh, otherwise they'd be blown into, they think, North Africa. The storm got so bad, the next day that they threw over the cargo, that's their payload. That's pretty bad, right? But on the third day, they threw over the tackle with their own hands, Luke tells us. And it seems that Luke wants us to know the storm was so bad that the sailors literally tossed over the very tackle, which was their livelihood. Riggings, rope, netting, essential things for doing their job. When you throw over those kinds of things, it's getting really bad. You're not thinking about your job anymore. You're not thinking about in the future, I'm not going to have my tool belt to do what I need to do. I'm not going to have the tackle anymore. And then in verse 20, it says, and I want us to get this, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. So not only were they being tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves, uh, terrified that the ship would fall apart, so seasick that they couldn't eat, it was also pitch black. This meant there was no way for them to navigate, no way whatsoever. They were like a, a bobber in a washing machine. Think about that. Luke, in, in the way Luke talks, he, 
in verse 20, he says, no small tempest lay upon us. That, that in, in Lucan terms, that means it was a big storm. It was a mighty storm. It overwhelmed us. And then we're told that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I don't want us to miss the significance of this. These are seasoned sailors. They had been trained for these circumstances. Most likely they were from sailing families. This was certainly not their first storm. And they did everything they knew to do and they were out of ideas. They'd reached the end of their ropes and all hope of being saved was abandoned. That is terrifying. In preparation for the sermon, Sarah and I, my wife, Sarah and I watched a movie with Robert Redford and uh, he played a seasoned sailor who was sailing in the Indian Ocean in a large sailboat by himself. And he saw a storm in the distance. So he started a process that apparently he had done many times. During the process, he got busy preparing for and then reacting to the storm. But one storm led to another and then to another and no small tempest lay upon him. And when the boat started to sink, he took all the essential gear and the water and the food and he went into the life raft. He was skilled, he was determined and he was reliant upon himself. But there came a point finally where he realized that all hope of his being saved was abandoned. He was broken and for the first time in this movie, emotion gripped him. And he cried out to heaven, cursing the fact that his skill and his effort and his discipline wouldn't save him. You know what the title of the movie is? Appropriately, All is Lost. This is exactly what's being described in this passage. It's a terrifying moment in the lives of these men. It shook them to the core. It caused them to come face to face with their mortality. What happens next is what I, I like to call the, this is the heart of the artichoke. Up until now, we've been, we've been scraping leaves on the, scraping our teeth on the leaves of the artichoke, but now we're coming to the heart of what that scraping is all about. Verse 21 starts out with the words, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them. That doesn't make sense. What, what, does, what does them being without food have anything to do with Paul standing up and speaking to them? Could it be the fact that they were weak and tired and without sustenance and they were physically in a place where they could finally listen to Paul? They were used to doing their own thing. They, they, uh, they, they, they uh, paid no attention to Paul previously, but they're now in a state where they could hear the truth. There was nothing left to lose. I think this is an incredibly poignant example and reminder that God often allows pain, weakness, infirmity, fear, hunger, and generally bad things to bring us all to a place where we can hear his truth. Isn't this where God does his best work? When we're at the end of ourselves and we have nowhere left to turn and we're forced to rely on someone bigger than ourselves, Maybe some of us have experienced that during this pandemic. Maybe the last 15 months have highlighted where we have mistakenly placed our hope. Maybe to some extent, this church has been going through this as we've been in a transition between lead pastors. It's been storm-like. It's been unsettling at best. 
But if we place our hope on anything other than the sovereign God of the universe, we'll eventually find ourselves in the place where these sailors all are despondent, weak, and feeling the loss of hope. Amen. In 1976, Gordon Lightfoot did a song. He recorded a song called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. If you're over 40, you know the song. If you're under 40, it's on YouTube, I'm sure. But there's a poignant line in this song. It speaks volumes. It goes something like this. You're okay. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. Uh, Yeah, Randy's laughing the hardest because he's heard me sing. And the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? This is what the world asks every time we have a tragedy on earth. Where is God in this? Where is his love? I think that's a fair question. It's absolutely fair. But I also know we have the answer. His love is ever-present, and it's here right now, and it's in the form of his son, Jesus. We have the truth, and it's in times of peril and catastrophe that we get to cling to that truth and then share that truth with others. People don't normally ask about God's love unless they have lost hope and are seeking the truth. Paul is ready to share that truth with the sailors. And here's how he opens it. He says, men, you should have listened to me. I don't want us to get the idea here that Paul was saying, guys, I was right, you were wrong, neener, neener, neener. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, hey, before I gave you wise counsel and you didn't listen to it. So take, take heart, take that to heart as I speak to you now. Here, here's how the message paraphrases this passage. It says, friends, you really should have listened to me back at Crete. We could have avoided all this trouble and trial, but there's no need to dwell on that now. From now on, things are looking up. In the middle of the storm, in this tempest, men who can't eat, he says, things are looking up. I love that. Up until now, they didn't respect Paul. But he stands up. Luke tells us he stands up. Why do we need to know that? Because they couldn't stand up. They were that sick. They were that despondent. He stands up and he speaks to them as a pastor would. And he says, yet I now urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So regardless of what they thought about Paul previously, He now had their attention and they listened to him. After all, he had spoken the truth before, but now they were desperate and their circumstances had given them ears to hear. And I think the next three verses, 23 through 25, are some of the most powerful words in the Bible. Listen to them. For this very night there stood beside me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The word Paul uses for God here is actually better translated the one and only true God. So what he's saying is an angel of that one and only true God visited me last night or or tonight and he told me we were all going to be okay. So cheer up, guys. We need to pause right here and and understand, at least talk about 
what Paul's relationship was like with the Lord. This is not the first time the Lord or one of his messengers had visited Paul. It happened a lot. He was visited by Jesus. He was visited by the Holy Spirit. And he was visited by angels. And during these times, he was encouraged. He was reminded of truths that were mentioned to him before. And he was comforted. I get the sense that Paul spent a lot of time praying and spending time in the scripture. And in 24, verse 24, he says, the, the, the angel comforts Paul by saying, do not be afraid. Which is interesting because Paul already knew he was supposed to go to Rome. So why the fear? It could have been fear of bodily harm, that, that, that he was going to get hurt, or that, that uh, he, the sailors and his friends could have been hurt or killed. Or maybe these circumstances had shaken his faith. Maybe the storm caused him to forget about the promises of God in that moment. And he needed to be reminded of something he had previously knew. That makes sense to me. Paul was a man like us. Don't we have this crazy propensity to forget the promises of God we're in the storm, when we're in the storms of life? Don't we forget? When we're in a storm, we forget the promises of God often. Last week, I had a very, very tough day, which is all too common the week before I preach. Which, an aside, um, remember to pray for your pastors as they prepare to preach because the enemy does not want us to hear the truth. I had a rough day. I felt beat up, I felt defeated, and I literally wanted to give up. Then I looked down at my desk and I saw something I had written, I don't know, a while back. I don't even remember writing it. I don't even know why I wrote it. But it was on a piece of paper scratched there, and here's what it said. No circumstance of life can change the decree or purpose of God. There's no circumstance in life that can, de- that, that can change what God has planned, what he has decreed, what his purpose is. And that reminder right there in my office by myself, feeling despondent, was all I needed to reboot my attitude and bring me back to a place of hope. In this case, Paul was reminded by an angel. But very few of us get to experience that. So where do we typically find God's truths and his promises? It's in his word, right? He had been spending time in God's word and talking to Jesus for years. It was his practice. You know, we we don't need to wonder if Paul was praying on this trip because the angel answers that question when he says, behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you which is a little confusing in that vernacular, but what it really means is God is answering your prayer of safety for these men. In the middle of the storm, Paul is praying for these rough and tumble men who didn't know Jesus and didn't respect Paul and went against what Paul's wise counsel was and got him and them into this situation, and he's praying for them. Sometimes I think we forget to pray for others when we're in storms ourselves. This is a great reminder to do that. It's also a great reminder to consider our spiritual practices. Do we spend time ta- talking to God, seeking answers in his word, and praying for others? And is this something we do on a regular basis? Even when we're not in a storm? 
Because if we wait for a storm before we converse with the Lord, really he's nothing more than a lifesaver hanging on the boat wall until we need him. And that's not a relationship. I am certain some of us are in that place right now. We are terrified and all of our self-soothing doesn't comfort us. We, we might ask God, what are you doing, Lord? But his answer isn't clear, so we remain terrified because we've done everything we know to do and it doesn't work. 10 days ago, Pastor Michael, our, our new lead pastor, said in the midweek message, when we can't make sense of God's ways, we need to rest in God's character. When we don't know what God is about, we need to rest in the character of God. But here's the problem with that. If we don't know the character of God, we are at a loss of hope. When the storm comes, we will be unable to be comforted and to rest. And in verse 24, I love this verse, Paul touches on the character of God when he says, the God to whom I belong. I'm not sure we think about that very often. There's a powerful truth. He, he's saying, God has accepted me. I belong to him. I am his. Brothers and sisters, do we really believe that we are his possession? That he owns us somehow? That we are his property? That, that we are his? Do we really believe that? Well, we don't have to go too much further than 1 Corinthians where we're told, you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. What is the price? What price did he pay? Well, look at First Peter. We are redeemed, we are purchased, we are bought. Not with gold or silver, but with something more precious, the blood of Jesus. That sealed the deal. We are his. We are his own possession. We can now clearly state with all confidence that God bought us from eternal death and the power of sin, and we are eternally his. We are eternally his. Eternity is a long time, and we are his, him, his for that long. That's an incredible truth. Amen. Amen. There is no greater truth in the cosmos than that. We are eternally God's. Isn't it incredible that a holy and righteous and perfect God would not only move toward us, but would then purchase us, redeem us. He's not just turning his face to us, he's embracing us as, as his own. We belong to God. What an incredible promise for those of us who follow Jesus. Then Paul says, and whom I worship. And the Greek word for worship here can also be translated serve. Some of your Bibles may say serve, but it has the idea of pledging my life to, of serving, of worshiping, of doing things for his sake. So it's important for us to see that Paul didn't stop with, I belong to God. He says, I belong to God, but now knowing that I willingly serve him. He, he affects the way I think and my day-to-day -day activity. This is the attitude of someone who chooses to be a bondservant. Not purchased as a slave, but purchased to be set free and then chooses to be a bondservant. 
yes, I've been purchased by God, but now I willingly submit my entire life as his bondservant. Do you know who in the New Testament identifies themselves as a bondservant? Paul, four time, in four letters, calls himself a bondservant. Peter and Jude both call themselves, themselves bondservants. James, who was the brother of Jesus, didn't introduce himself in the book of James as James, the brother of Jesus. He says, what? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John in the book of Revelation calls himself a bondservant, and then he does something amazing. He calls all of us bondservants. Wow. Wow. A bondservant is someone who willingly pledges his or her life to someone, in this case, Jesus. If you want to know about what, what does that mean to be a bondservant, read, Hebrew, uh, uh, read Romans chapter 6, where, where Paul lays out what it's like to be purchased from sin and how we turn our lives as a bondservant for righteousness. We worship him. We serve him. Our life is about him because he paid our debt and we are his. A friend of mine who used to be a leader here in the church moved, but I spent some time with him and I noticed on his computer, he had a little piece of paper that said, it's not about you. I questioned him and he said, I need to be reminded every day that my life is about serving God, not about being served by God. I love that. there's an incredible thing here is that when God thinks of us, he doesn't just see this Lord bond servant relationship. He sees it as a love affair in, um, in the book of Jeremiah 31 verse three, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then in the song of Solomon, he likens that relationship is likened to, to us and God where it says, my beloved is mine and I am his. This means he loves us. He wants to spend time with us. And you know what? I don't think I can hear that truth too often. I don't think any of us can. As a matter of fact, any of you who remember anything I've ever preached before, this truth is in every sermon I've ever preached. And in verse 25, Paul starts the verse by saying, so, or therefore. Meaning, based on everything I've just told you about God and who he is and his plans for you and I, take heart, take heart. Well, we don't use that very often, but, but it can also be translated, keep up your courage, be cheerful, be of good spirits. In other words, this is good news, you guys. Have joy, God has spoken. And then Paul ends his encouragement with this, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. If you have the New American Standard, it translates this as, I believe God. I like that one. I believe God. What a great capstone of encouragement. I believe the promises of God. Here's what I know. In my own life and in our lives, we forget the promises of God, which is one of the reasons why we should be in his word on, an, on a regular basis. So I just, I'm gonna give you six, six truths, six promises of God to consider this morning. Number one, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells us that in Matthew in Romans, we're told there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned for 
anything we do. Thirdly, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question. It means there's no one, no one who's against us matters if God is for us. That's also in Romans 8.31. Also in chapter 8 of Romans, nothing can separate us, nothing. That word nothing in the Greek, you know what it means? Nothing, nothing right? <laughs> nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The love of God is in Jesus, not in any other leader, not in any other leader of a religion. Not, it's in Jesus. That's the love of God is poured through Jesus. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I love that one. Refuge is a place we go to when we're, when we're in danger or hurting. He's our refuge. And strength, that's, he gives us the strength to go out, to go forth, to live. And then it says, a very present help in trouble. That means now, not later, now. He's our refuge now and is our strength now. We're told both in Deuteronomy and Hebrews, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a beautiful truth. Here's one we've been mentioning almost every week since Pastor Dave stepped out and since we've been in this pandemic and things have changed quite a bit in the church with where we're meeting, things like that. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. He will build his church. It's not our church. It's his church. We just happen to be enjoying him in this church. There's hundreds more, literally hundreds more, probably thousands more. All we have to do is open our Bible and look at the promises of God. Today, we're reminded of the promise that we are his and he is ours and we can trust him. And most of us will never find ourselves in a storm like this that I just described. Probably none of us, maybe very few of us, if any, will ever find ourselves in a shipwreck of any type. But we don't have to look too far to find other storms in our lives, do we? Job loss, financial concerns, relationship issues, divorce, bullying, unfair treatment, death of a loved one, health issues, cancer, the list goes on and on and on. The life is filled with storms. I spent a lot of time with the pastor who started this church, Charlie Youngkin, and one of the things he said often is, we are either coming out of a storm or there's one on the horizon. And if that's true, what do we do? Do we live our lives in fear? Uh-oh, storm's coming. Do we continuously batten down the hatches to try to, try to protect ourselves? Do we numb ourselves? I know that one too well. By various methods, do we numb ourselves to the reality that we are living in stormy times? Do we live our lives in constant distraction from the storms that are sure to come? Or do we rest in the truth that we are his, which means we've been purchased by him? And that he is ours, which means our lives are about him. And that he is trustworthy, which means we can believe his promises. 
I'd like to close with a quote from Ken Mansfield. He was the former manager of Apple Records and he was a US manager of the Beatles. And in the 60s, he was the most successful record executives there, there have been. But a storm hit and he lost it all. And to make ends meet, he found himself begging for a job as a roadie, loading trucks for the people he used to manage. And through this storm, he met Jesus because in his new state, he had ears to hear. And by the way, he tells about people who had been praying for him that he didn't even know because he was a celebrity. He had people praying for him. And he met Jesus. The book is called The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay, which is where he currently lives. And at the end of the book, he writes these words. Today I found out I have incurable cancer. It is a few days before Christmas, and my reaction is one of peace. I was disappointed to hear the news, but at the same time, I had an uncanny sense of relief. Being a Christian sure comes in handy in times like these. It was almost as if God was beginning to reveal a new stage in my life. Deep within, where his comforting spirit dwells, I felt clarity in the mysterious, understanding of the unknown, and vision into the unseen. I am in his purpose, and that is all I need to know. It is quiet on the edge, and the setting sun reveals a majestic sky of deep cerulean blue. I can almost touch the golden linings of the dusk-tinted clouds and resting above the sea. The still waters of the inner bay glow softly. Rich purple reflections arise out of the cool, darkened, liquid mirror before me. As I watch the fading sunset, I clutch my Bible in my hands, and I am thankful. God, I'm no longer scared. I love that quote. What a miraculous thing. The water he was looking at was still and beautiful, but he was entering a storm. Yet he had peace beyond understanding, even though this tempest was on its way. It doesn't surprise me that he was holding the word of God in his hand, filled with the promises of God. Otherwise, he could never have reacted in that way. And the result, he's no longer scared. He is God's, and God is his, and he believes him. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.